0: Chapter two again this morning. I think we'll go one more week here. Ruth chapter two. I'd plan to read the entirety of the chapter, but I think we'll just read the first seven verses this morning for the sake of the sake of time. Maybe eight, maybe nine. Let's get, let's go. Let's read the first seven and then we'll see where we're at. And if we want to read more, we can. Ruth chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go into the field and glean among the ears of grain after him whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Let's read a couple more verses. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not, do not go and glean in any another field, or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they, have, that they are reaping, and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and the full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for, I, for, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. Our, our boys eat a lot of food. Um, they're five and three. I honestly don't know how we're going to feed them when they're teenagers. Those of you who have teenage boys probably understand and know. But when it comes to food, our boys are incredibly persistent, they're incredibly persistent. I don't know how they have, they don't have enough stamina to do anything except ask for food continually. It's incredible. The other day, Tev cried because after, he's our three-year-old, he cried because after he ate a hamburger, a hot dog, his chips, his mom's chips, an Oreo, a plate full of watermelon, he cried because I wouldn't give him another hamburger. Every day, every day is like, do you know the book, The Very Hungry Caterpillar Parents? You know that, right? The Very Hungry Caterpillar? Every day is like Saturday. Saturday. Where the very hungry caterpillar eats through all of these things like cake and a lollipop and all of these really gross things that, I mean, are delicious but make you feel gross. And then the, and then the very hungry caterpillar comes to Sunday and he's like, oh, my tummy hurts. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to eat a green leaf and feel better. Every day is Saturday, though. No, We never get to that Sunday. I'm waiting for one day for them to come to me and say, Dad, you know my tummy really hurts. Can I just have a spinach leaf? But that never happens. It's always Saturday in the very Hunting Caterpillar universe. Again, 5 and 3. When it comes to food, our boys are incredibly persistent. And as we've spent time in Ruth chapter 2, in Ruth's book of whole, we've seen a portrait of a worthy man. That worthy man is Boaz. If you look at verse 1, We see, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech. He points us to Jesus, Boaz points us to Jesus through his actions. He offers security to Ruth, he offers provision to Ruth, he offers refreshment to Ruth. And Boaz offered these things to Ruth on a small scale, whereas Jesus offers us provision, security, and refreshment on an eternal scale. And then a couple of weeks ago, we saw that Ruth receives the favor of Boaz, not as one who earned it, just like we sang a moment ago, not as one who earned it, but as one who was a foreigner, who had no right to receive the favor of Boaz. And she fell on her face, and we see that in, in, uh, in verse um, 10. She falls on her face, bowing to the ground, and says, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? That would be a response, demonstrates or shows us the grace of God falling on one's face shows us what it means to receive grace. We say, "Oh Lord, why have you, God, shown your favor to me, when I was a sinner, when I was alienated and hostile in mind, completely separate from you. Why have you shown me your, your favor? Why have you granted grace to me?" And so as followers of Jesus, a couple weeks ago, we talked about the fact that we should be driven to humility. We should be driven to humility, just like Ruth, falling out. So much of our Christian subculture has turned into this grasping for rights, trying to find something societally or individually that we can lay hold of. But the fact is, when we receive grace, we relinquish all of that. We let all of that go. We say, no, no. This is not what I have earned. This is not what God has promised me. God has promised us societal or individual rights here on this earth. We demand those rights. We don't fall on our face. We stand up and say, oh yeah, I did something to earn that from God. This is not the posture of Ruth and friends. It can't be ours either. God is at, ru- or at work in Ruth. That's the point of these first two chapters. God is at work in Ruth. He drives her. She receives this grace and it drives her to be this person who responds to the favor of Boaz in a particular way. These are the fruits of grace in her life. She counts the cost following Naomi back to Bethlehem. The fruit of grace. The fruits of grace in our life are similar, a full preparedness to count the cost of following Jesus, a life of no guarantees, and an acknowledgement and proper response to the favor shown by Boaz is seen in Ruth, and our acknowledgement and a proper response to the grace demonstrated to us by Christ Jesus. And here's one more this morning. Our boys are persistent. Ruth. a fruit of grace in her life is persistence as well. We see this in particular in verses six and seven. We'll get there in a second. But let me give you a, the reason I say persistence. Let me give you just the definition of the definition that we're going to work with. Persistence is a firm continuation in a course of action in spite of difficulty or opposition. Firm continuation, continuance in a course of action in spite of difficulty. Or opposition. Before we move and talk about persistence, we've got to lay some groundwork here. Because this is important. A friend sent me a sermon a couple weeks ago in Ecclesiastes 9 by a man named Zach Eswine. He's a pastor. And the premise of this sermon is that the world tells you, the world tells you that you must... You as an individual, in order to be successful, in order to be well thought of in this world, you must do a large and famous thing fast. You must do a large and famous thing fast for the world to look at you and say, there's a person who's successful. There's a person who's got it together. And that this sermon, it got me thinking in a particular about this text, especially verses 6 and 7. I'm afraid many of us, even in the context of the church, subscribe to a vision of success that looks like doing something large and famous fast. And so the pastor who preached this sermon, he went to Ecclesiastes nine thirteen through 15, and it says this. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with a few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor wise man. And there's a dilemma posed there, right? A a little city, a great king coming against it, but there's a deliverance that takes place through this poor man, through this poor man that Solomon calls wise, and it is by his wisdom he delivered. The... Now, we don't know exactly how that happened or why it happened or what he did, but verse 16 kind of answers this dilemma that is posed in Ecclesiastes 9, 13 through 15. He says, but I say that wisdom is better than might. The, the wisdom of this poor man delivered the city against a great king who brought who laid siege to the city and brought a siege? Built a, built a siege works against it. But I say that wisdom is better than might. Though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. I wonder. I wonder if we believe. I wonder if I believe that. I wonder if I, I wonder if I believe that wisdom is better than might. The world doesn't listen to people who are poor or uneducated because they don't meet the standards of success set up by the world. But is there wisdom there? Solomon says, and so does Jesus, poor by the world's standards. But Jesus is the incarnation of godly wisdom. And so, when we get to Ruth chapter 2 and look at these few verses that we've looked at this morning, Ruth should become an incredible example to us. Our picture of Ruth sometimes is like this Renaissance painting of this woman in these like colorful, flowing garb with like eyeliner on. Friends, she was a destitute widow. She had nothing. She didn't know where her next meal was coming from. In her society, societally, there were no programs set up. She couldn't walk down to an office and apply for government assistance. She didn't have a family. There was nothing there for her. The only family she had was her mother-in-law, who was exactly the same boat as she was. And yet, Ruth has great Wisdom. And it's not seen in doing a large, famous thing fast. I think we can clearly see that. But in quiet persistence in the place that you found yourself. I read an article this week about a, a man who's a pastor of a church. He's someone I respect a lot. Of his preaching I think is great. I, I, I've read some of his books. I think he's, I think he's an upright guy. I don't know him personally, but I'm I'm just going to go out on a limb and say that. His church, his church is just shy of 10,000 members. It's a big church. His church has also planted 40 other churches whose average attendance is over 10,000. Does that make him wise No. There are a lot of people in this world who have done larger or more large, larger, more famous things faster than he has. Who have stumbled, who have cheated on their wives, who have addiction to all sorts of substances or pornography, who rely on their own ingenuity to accomplish tasks before them. Certainly we would say they are not wise. The point of this is that accomplishments here on earth are not an indicator of wisdom. Laying siege to a city, doing a large, famous thing, fast laying siege to a city, building a siege work against a city doesn't make someone wise. As much as we want to applaud that, and maybe we should, it doesn't necessarily mean wisdom. If you walk back up the page in Ecclesiastes 9 to verse 11, you see this. Again, I saw under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor the bread to the wise, nor the riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those who with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. These are temporary. They're subject to the things of the world, to stock markets, to data entry errors, And in that verse, Solomon says, nor the bread of the wise. He means from a worldly perspective, the bread from a wise and a worldly perspective. He's speaking about those who think themselves or think that wisdom comes from doing a large, famous thing fast. So what he's saying is that speed, strength, worldly wisdom, intelligence, and knowledge, these are not our metrics for success. They are not our yardsticks. And don't miss this, friends. Don't get sucked into this line of thinking. You don't have less of an opportunity to learn or grow or be faithful to the mission that God has put before you in the Civic Center dungeon without air conditioning than in a climate-controlled Astrodome. Gosh, I wish we had some air conditioning. But you don't have any less opportunity to be faithful to what God has put before you here in this room than you do in a room with 10,000 other people. You don't have more opportunity to help another know God by sitting on a couch that is upholstered in leather or upholstered in cat pee-soaked floral print. You don't have more opportunity to flourish in this life with a full bank account than you do without a dime. Many of you in this room are in the early stages of a career And maybe you will do a large famous thing fast. Maybe you will. But maybe not. And whether you do a large famous thing fast or not, will you be content? Or will you demand more? Will you demand that you do a larger, more famous thing faster? Will you lay siege to something, a desire to lay siege to something more well-known or larger? If you do or do not, it is no matter. It doesn't make you wise. If this is all you hear this morning, great. Right here. Wisdom is a gift, but giftedness is no indicator of wisdom. Wisdom is a gift, but giftedness is no indicator of wisdom. And we find wisdom wisdom in Ruth's persistence, despite having nothing. And so here are the two thoughts from this text that we're going to look at this morning. Two thoughts primarily coming from those first seven verses. Ruth's persistence is two things. We can characterize those things with two modifiers. One, Ruth's persistence is commissioned. Two, Ruth's persistence is courageous. So let's look at these. Commissioned persistence. Look at verse 2 with me. Look at verse 2. We have this interaction between Ruth and Naomi, right? And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, look the field and glean among the ears of grain after him whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go my daughter. Ruth is entrusted here with a task. She's entrusted with a task by Naomi. She has a task to go out and glean in the field. Now, I said a moment ago that there was no government office that she could go to in order to fill out a paperwork and get some assistance. But God had set up a structure in the law for ways for, for orphans and widows and foreigners to be provided for. And we find that in Deuteronomy 24, 19. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you do not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner for the fatherless and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. So context here though, right? This is what God tells his people to do, but context, we're in the time of the judges. And you'll remember that very last verse in the book of Judges, Judges 21, 25, where it says, in those days there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So we can honestly take away from that that you could have gone to any number of fields and this would not be happening. So, Ruth comes to Boaz's field. It looks like a pretty good field to glean in. It looks like this is actually happening. He's actually Deuteronomy 24 and 19. And this is where her persistence comes in. Her task is to, to glean. And she finds a good field, and she persists in obtaining permission to glean there. Look at verses 5 through 7. You see this, right? Boaz shows up. He said, whose young woman is this? Servant, young man says, this is the young woman who came back with Naomi. And then he says, she says, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and now she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. And when Boaz addresses Ruth, he shows her favor then, right? We talked about that a couple weeks ago. So what can we learn? What, what does this show us here? Well, I think a couple of things. We'll just look at a couple of things. First, that the task is given to Ruth, and she is commissioned by Naomi. A commission is an instruction, a command, or a duty given to a person or a group of people. Ruth is commissioned to go and find a place to glean so that she and Naomi could eat. Immediately, that word that Naomi says to Ruth, go, should raise in us. It should echo in our heads the commission that we've received from Jesus. She tells her to go. Jesus tells us to go. What is the tag? Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Go, therefore, go, go. Therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. There is a... There is a... Nope, not going to say it. Not going to go there. There's something that I want to say about this verse, and we'll get to it at some point, not this morning. So Jesus tells his followers to go into the world, and to make disciples. Notice the specificity in each commission also. Ruth is to go and to glean and to find the best place to do so. To go and make disciples, baptizing and teaching, to observe Jesus' words. And so that's the second thing I want to say, specificity in the commission. There is the word go, and then there's a specific task tied to the go. Ruth's task wasn't negotiable. If they were to eat as widows, she had to go, a sojourner. There had to be the observation again of Deuteronomy twenty four nineteen happening in her society, but she had to go. Our task also as people is non-negotiable, but I'm often struck by how we circumvent Jesus' words so conveniently. We get stuck doing some mental gymnastics and make excuses for ignoring Jesus what we've been commissioned to do. Ruth wasn't going to walk away from that field when she apparently didn't get anywhere with a young manager. Oftentimes we walk away from our commission when there's some overtime that needs to be done, or when our kids are screaming their heads off, or when we think that God hasn't quite blessed us with the ability to articulate the gospel or to make disciples. Ruth wasn't going to walk away, and we shouldn't either. The young manager says that she had been there from morning until now, early morning until now, except for a short rest. Her persistence appears to be, it's, it's apparent, maybe even a little annoying to this young guy. So we ask ourselves the question, is our persistence in our mission apparent to others like Ruth's was to the young manager of the Reapers? And when we go back and we think about Ecclesiastes 9, when we think about what we thought about there at the beginning of our time together, and large, famous, fast things, here's the danger. 2018, we have the internet, we have Facebook Live, we have the ability to live stream lots of different things. And so, any one of you this morning could be at home watching a Facebook Live event of some mega church somewhere else in the country. You could be. We want to talk about the problems with that. But our minds immediately go to those are the people who have done large, famous things fast, and we have then ascribed to them wisdom. We're tempted to think to ourselves, Boy, they're they're really nailing the Great Commission. Look at all of those disciples. Look at all of those disciples. But the volume of people sitting in stadium seating is no indicator of their effectiveness or, again, their wisdom. Rather, our effectiveness and wisdom is measured by our persistence in the mission given to us. And our mission is a life, not a one-time act. Our mission doesn't take breaks. You're deceiving yourself if you invite someone into your home every, once every 10 years and call yourself hospitable. You're deceiving yourself if you donate to a cause on someone's birthday on Facebook and call yourself generous. No, this is a life. This is, this is what it looks like to live your life as a generous individual. If those are isolated events, then you're deceiving yourself. There must be a situated, they must be situated in a larger narrative of hospitality or generosity. Big famous fast things catch our eye. But what, faithfulness is what God sees. Why? Because faithfulness gives him the glory. Because it says, I believe that Jesus is the only way to get to God, to be satisfied, to have contentment, to flourish and to grow and to be what God intended. So faithfulness is commissioned persistence. It's persistence with an ordained specific task that comes from a higher authority. I think a lot of us are persistent in a lot of things. Getting our money back on a customer service phone call. Maybe, and I think we may even claim that we're commissioned to do a lot of things. And don't get me wrong, God does place tasks in front of us that are not forever. My call to preach and to shepherd is probably different than most of yours. Someone's task to own a restaurant or be a stay-at-home mom or a teacher or a farmer or an entrepreneur, I don't necessarily share in those specific God-given tasks. But let me assure you of one thing. Let me... Let me assure you of one thing. I said earlier, if you hear only one thing, if you only hear two things, this is the second one. God will, maybe this is the first one and that's the second, it doesn't matter. God will never give you a task that subverts or takes the place of the commission to make disciples. God will never give you a task that subverts or takes the place of the commission to make disciples. Let me say that again. God will never give you a task that subverts or takes the place of the commission to make disciples. Not your job, not your family, not your hobby, not your political positions, not your charity work. Nothing can push pause on the Great Commission in your life. The takeaway is this be faithful, or in other words, be persistent. In the mission that we all share, if you're in Christ, if you've been united with Christ, we all share in this mission, make disciples. So that's the first thing, commissioned persistence. Second thing, courageous persistence. Consider also Ruth's courageous persistence. Ruth knew Probably through Naomi, again, this Deuteronomy 24, 19 principle, that gleaning was the way that widows and sojourners were cared for in this society. And so she steps out courageously and persists in her request to glean in Boaz's field. Similarly, our courage in our mission comes from just a few words spoken in Christ's commission prior to the go. In verse 18 of Matthew chapter 28, where he says... All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The question is this, do you know your king? Do you know the one who has been given authority over all things? Do you recognize his authority in your life? Do you recognize his authority over your work? Do you recognize his authority over your play? Do you recognize his authority over the people who make you angry? Do you recognize his authority over the tasks that seem difficult, the mountains that seem insurmountable? Do you recognize his authority in your life? The question is if Jesus really meant what he said here, in Matthew 28, verse 18, if he really meant what is said here, what do you have to lose? We've asked this question before what do you have to lose? If all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus Christ, your king, what do you have to lose? What do you have to lose? I can't can't think of anything. So we must, as people, as God's people, as those who have identified with the local church, through the salvation that we received in Christ Jesus, we must ask ourselves the question, What do we have to lose and then we have to step out and say, I'm not living like I have anything to lose anymore. Persistence in the mission requires that you wake up each morning and look around and say, if none of this was here, I would have lost nothing. Can you you say that? Can you look at the things, can you go get in your vehicle and drive home And say, if I lost this vehicle, or if I lost this home that I'm driving to, if I lost this bed that I'm sleeping in, if I lost this food, if I lost a family member, if I lost a loved one, can we honestly say that even in those situations we have lost nothing? The truth is, the truth that Scripture communicates to us, the truth that Jesus communicates to us specifically is this Our King will not abandon us. Our King has been granted authority over all things. He is worthy. There is no battle that He has not won. We sang about it a moment ago. No chain that He hasn't broken, no barrier that is too big. He defeated sin. He defeated death. Not only did he defeat death, he made a mockery of it. We stand with him and mock sin and death because they're pitily and pathetic and he destroyed them when he came back from the grave. He has not only positioned himself with all authority on heaven and on earth and is rightfully our king, but he's also called you, if you're united with Christ, his brother or sister. He's no longer called us slaves. He's called us his friend. He is the very word of God that brought everything into existence. This is the king that we serve. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. What then do you have to lose? You and I get to, we, we oftentimes like look at something and we see an imperative given or a command given in Scripture. We often look at it and we say, oh, I've got to do this thing. Friends, we get to do this thing. He is our King. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to Him. It is not burdensome task to be enrolled to tell everyone how awesome our King is. But we drag our feet and we act Like we have something to lose, even in our own midst. The people on your left and your right, we labor and we struggle. What if I say something about how awesome Jesus is? People who we know who have professed Christ, who have been unified with Him. (sighs) Oh man, I don't want to step on that person's toes. It's not about your toes. We soften the message. Sometimes we don't speak courageously because we believe that we have something to lose and our king has not been given all authority, but the reality is that he has been given all authority. Salvation is offered freely. It costs us everything, but we gain everything. And we can be persistent because of the task is not to do something, a large famous thing fast, but rather to be faithful in the mission. Friends, we can be persistent because our task is not to do a large, famous thing fast, but to be persistent in the mission that we've been given. Sometimes I think that we don't spend time thinking about the Great Commission, go therefore make disciples of all nations, because because we feel like we're the ones that the outcome needs to flow through. But he just says, be faithful to what I've given you. We can be persistent because our task is not to accomplish a large, famous thing fast, but rather to be faithful in the mission. So this morning, conclusion. I'm going to give you four things. What can we do this week to apply this truth? Because thinking about persistence in the mission, the commission that we've been given by Christ. One, know what you've been commissioned to do. Ruth knew the task that was given to her and she was persistent in it. We must also know our mission. And our mission comes to us as those who have received all things in Christ. And so, in order to know our mission, we must know our God. We must know Jesus Christ who commissions us. That comes through consistent time spent in God's word. It should sound like a broken record. Consistent time. Time spent in God's word, both individually and together. I don't know how you can know God outside of that. I have no answers for you. Know what you've been commissioned to do. Secondly, pray for strength and courage to persist in the mission. I love this parable Jesus tells, Luke 18, 1-8. The reason I love it is because he tells us why he tells it. Sometimes you read a parable and you're like, why did he say that? He tells us why he tells it. First verse. And he told them a parable to the effect they ought to always pray and not lose heart. Done. We know what the parable is about already. We didn't even read verse 2. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, "Though I neither fear God nor respect man, who says that to themselves? Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming." And the Lord said, "Hear what the unrighteous judge says, and he will, and will not God give you justice, or will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you." He will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Interesting question, Jesus. Will, when he returns, the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? That implies, that implies our efforts in mission won't always look like a large, famous, fast thing. Will the Son of Man, will Jesus find faith on earth? If we are faithful to the mission he has given to us the answer will be yes because we will be courageously believe that all authority does not belong to him, or because all authority does belong to him and our participation in the mission anticipates his return. Our participation in the mission anticipates the return of Jesus Christ. Why? Because it says we've got nothing to lose. Third thing, Look to Jesus. Now, that that doesn't, let me explain that. Our mission is to make him known. But when Jesus humbled himself and came to earth, he also had a mission to purchase a people back, to save them from their sin and from death. There was no one in the history of the world who was more persistent in his mission than Jesus Christ. Scripture, a text that prefigures Christ, Isaiah 57 but the Lord God helps me, therefore I shall have not or I shall I therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. Jesus set his face like a flint, that means he was resolute, that means he saw what was coming, that means that he looked forward, he was determined in his mission. Jesus was unwaveringly faithful. And when he brought us back from sin and death, all authority was given to him. And therefore, we look to Jesus not only as the one who sets the example for us in persistence in mission, but as the one who provides us with the strength and courage to persist in ours. Finally, then this morning. So, one, know what you've been commissioned to do. Two, pray for strength and courage to persist in the mission. Three, look to Jesus both as the example and the one who provides the strength. And four, finally this morning, Our vision is the congregation. Buffalo City Church, those who have identified with Buffalo City Church this morning. Our vision as a congregation is all tied up in Christ's commission given to us. And we must partner together as God's people. Friends, again, our mission to make disciples who make disciples of Jesus Christ. This is what the church is set apart to do. It's not just to meet on Sunday morning. It's not just to get together. It's not just to put together a nice, healthy budget. It's not to, 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 to network. It's not to do these things that oftentimes we think of the church as doing. No, no, no. Our mission and the, church, the mission of every church is to make disciples who make disciples of Jesus Christ. Why? Because that's the mission that Jesus gave to us. And that comes through persistence in the mission. We want to see churches planted, restarted, revitalized. We want to see churches growing and being strengthened in our region. And that comes through persistence in the mission. The mission of the church is to make disciples. We are called to it, no exceptions. We are all called to it, no exceptions. So, this, we consider how you're engaged in the mission. Are we faithful, expression of the local church? Friends, we want to be healthy, whole, complete expression of the local church. One metric faithfulness to the mission. How are we growing in our knowledge of God and observation of what Jesus has commanded? How are we helping others grow in their knowledge of God and observation of what Jesus commanded? This is an all-of-life question. Faithfulness doesn't take time off. If it does, then it's not faithfulness. Taking time off from faithfulness makes it not faithfulness. And so, friends, even more practical than we've talked about, If you're here this morning, if you've been with us for a little while, I want to encourage you to think about or pursue membership in the local church. If you've been here and you've been thinking to yourself, man, I'm, I'm here, I'm eating in this Sunday morning buffet, but then I'm kind of dashing out of here, consider becoming a member. Now, what I'm not saying is get looped in here and then you're on the hook. That's not what I'm interested in. I'm interested in people formalizing a partnership. Coming together with other people of God and saying, we're united by the shed blood of Jesus. Let's come together and say, yeah, our mission is like-minded. We're together. We want to grow together. We want to see the city of Jamestown and the surrounding region transformed with the truth of the gospel. We're like, we're going to float around. We don't dine and dash and never engage in discipleship or the mission of the local church. If you haven't already, consider joining a community group. It's a doorway to discipleship and disciple making. It's not an end of itself. I don't care if five of you or 5,000 of you are in there. It doesn't matter. But if you're struggling to get to know people and to build relationships that can encourage each other in the truth of the gospel, that might be a great doorway to discipleship for you. Serve others. If you need help figuring out how to serve someone else, come talk to me. Friends, our goal isn't to do a large, famous thing fast. We see Ruth with nothing persistent in her mission. Our goal is to be found faithful, just like Ruth, to be found faithful and encourage others to do the same. So, let's know what we're commissioned to do. Know the commission that we've been given. Let's know the one who commissions us to do it. Depend on him for the strength. And then, friends, let's faithfully partner together I'm pleading with you. Let's faithfully partner together to impact our city and our region with the truth of the gospel for the glory of God. Let's pray.